0: The first ever bestseller science book went on sale in 1665. It was a book of highly detailed scientific drawings of natural artifacts viewed through a microscope, a new technology in the 1660s. The book's 60 images ranged from the whimsical to the grotesque, a bee's stinger, the inner structure of bird feathers, and crystallized urine. The most famous of these shows the plated body of a blood-sucking louse, blown up to a terrifying scale. Here's Patricia Farah, a historian of science at Cambridge University.
1: That was a wonderful way to attract the audience because they're absolutely stunning to look at. And you didn't need a great deal of brains or knowledge to understand them. I mean, if you looked at a flea or an ant, you could be suitably
0: stunned and impressed. The general public had never seen nature in such magnified detail before and the book became an international sensation. 500 years on, these illustrations still stun viewers with their painstaking realism. The book was called Micrographia, and its author and illustrator was the English scientist Robert Hooke. Hooke was a pioneer in the field of microscopy, and his writing in Micrographia can barely conceal his childlike wonder, the strange things he discovered in the new micro-world. But it wasn't just curiosity that motivated Hooke's work on Micrographia. Hooke belonged to a new scientific research group called the Royal Society. The Society employed controversial experimental methods in their scientific work, and Micrographia was published to both promote and defend those new methods. But Micrographia was also a response to religious controversy. In the 16th and 17th centuries, many intellectuals held profound doubts about humankind's ability to understand the physical world at all. The source of these doubts lay with Christian theology. Some theologians taught that the first humans, Adam and Eve, were gifted with perfect powers of reasoning, but that they lost these powers with the fall. Christian theology thus posed a problem for science. How, in our fallen state, could we know anything at all? This is Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas about the complex and captivating relationship of religion and science. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we'll look at how Robert Hooke's 17th century masterpiece, Micrographia, helped forge the foundations of modern science by trying to resolve a major theological problem of his time. Hooke's story shows how religion and science have been tangled together since the beginning, sometimes in tension, sometimes in rich and productive mutual inspiration. Looking back at Hook, we can discern new ways of viewing the relationship between religion and science that might make for a more productive future. Robert Hooke isn't a household name today, but he really should be. He was an absolute genius, and there are few areas of science where he did not leave a mark. Isaac Newton was indebted to him for his theory of planetary orbits. He devised a revolutionary theory of light. In his study of rock formations, Hooke raised questions about the fossil record that would only be solved two centuries later by Darwin. But his childhood gave few hints of the glittering scientific career ahead. Here's Jim Bennett, former director of the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford. Robert Hooke was born on the Isle of Wight
2: which is always a bit of a bit of a surprise because as far as English people are concerned, the Isle of Wight is not a place you expect people to come from because it's so small. He was born there in um, 1635. He was a son of a clergyman, you know, a fairly straightforward, humble kind of background.
0: These were inauspicious beginnings for a 17th century researcher. Back then, the study of nature wasn't a paid profession like it is today. In fact, the term scientist didn't even exist. The closest term was natural philosopher. And most were aristocrats, people who could afford the instruments, time, and labor needed to unravel the mysteries of nature. But Hooke benefited from some good luck. When he was about 13, family connections secured him a place at London's prestigious Westminster School. Hooke excelled academically, academically. After graduating from Westminster, he got accepted to Christchurch College and gained a reputation as a gifted laboratory technician. And a group of aristocratic natural philosophers soon took notice of this young prodigy.
1: So there was Wren, who's more famous now as an architect, but wasn't an architect then. There was Robert Boyle. William Harvey was there, the great medical experimenter. Willis, who discovered the importance of the brain. There was, there was a big group of scientific people there.
0: Hooke's circle shared something important, a brand-spanking-new approach to knowledge based on experimentation. They learned about the physical world by direct and systematic observation.
2: The difference between what they were doing and the formal natural philosophy that was taught at the university where it was taught was that they were doing experiments. They believed in empirical knowledge, whereas the university had more of an emphasis on book learning and on studying classical authors, who, like Aristotle, who might have written on natural philosophy, but it was studied through a, a scholarly uh, approach uh, based on books rather than the practical approach of this group, uh, this,
0: this philosophical society, which was based on experiments. In manipulating nature through rigorous tests, this group was overthrowing a centuries-old tradition of studying nature by reading books and generating philosophical theories. One of the rebellious experimentalists that Hooke met at Oxford was Robert Boyle, who was seven years his senior. Boyle was the leader of this new experimental avant-garde. But Boyle lacked the finesse for tinkering and building, skills that were essential in pursuing his very practical approach to research so Boyle enlisted the more technically savvy Hook as his trusted laboratory assistant. Hook seemed delighted for the distraction from his normal studies. He kept
1: bunking off the lessons and going and doing sort of mechanical jobs. That was what he really loved. He was a fabulous craftsman as well as being very clever.
0: One of Boyle and Hooke's most memorable collaborations happened in 1657 when Boyle asked Hooke to build him an air pump a hollow metal chamber that could be emptied of all its air. Air pumps were all the rage in scientific circles after a famous experiment in Germany demonstrated that two teams of six buff men could not pull one apart once emptied of its air. Hooke replicated the pump, and over the course of the next decade, the pair conducted 43 experiments with it. By 1660, Hooke's experimentalist friends were graduating and moving to London, a chaotic and bustling port city there were
2: seamen and with there were uh, ships trading with distant locations abroad and so on and there were physicians in london there were other colleges like the college of physicians and so on and there were there was interest in in artillery and the arts of war
0: robert boyle's friendship and patronage brought hook to gresham college located in central london where their network had made their new home gresham was a public lecture venue offering education in fields like navigation practical mathematics, and architecture, and it acted as London's intellectual hub. One night, after a lecture by the architect Christopher Wren, a group of men stayed on to continue their scientific discussions. Two were Hook's mentors, John Wilkins and Robert Boyle. They decided to form a club for experimental studies. The Royal Society was born. Or so the story goes.
1: Nobody really knows how true that is, but that's a sort of generally accepted myth of ha- how it all started. It was just a, a sort of gentleman's club, and they came together and they had to pay a subscription and they found out about the latest experiments. It was also a very good opportunity for networking and finding out what was happening. And um, it was sort of it was more like that rather than a distinct group of people who gave themselves a label.
0: Hooke was soon appointed the Royal Society's curator of experiments, with the demanding task of devising three to four new experiments each week. He found himself the beating heart of an institution conducting the most innovative scientific work of the day. But some of that work would also address one of the greatest theological challenges of his era an idea that questioned whether humans could gain certain knowledge of the natural world at all. In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation had swept across Europe, changing how people thought about God and personal spirituality, but also about knowledge itself. Protestantism found inspiration in the fourth century writings of Saint Augustine. Augustine taught that the first humans, Adam and Eve, possessed superhuman mental capacities, Their perfect powers of sensory observation and reason could effortlessly grasp truths about nature with a glance. But then they defied God's command not to eat from the tree of knowledge. After this act of disobedience, the fall, God removed their gifts of cognitive perfection. Ever since, the human race has been marked by moral and intellectual frailty. Augustinian theology posed three problems in particular for human knowledge. First, human memory was not reliable and could not be trusted. Second, the human mind was generally prone to error. And third, human senses, like sight, hearing, and touch, could not accurately perceive the world. St. Augustine's pessimism about human nature helped inspire Martin Luther's own emphasis on salvation through grace alone, that we are incapable of saving ourselves through our own good works. This Protestant focus on the fallenness of humanity fueled a wave of anxiety among 17th-century European intellectuals about the limits of human understanding. Think how frightening it would be to not be sure of knowing anything. In response, some researchers began devising strategies for overcoming the cognitive weaknesses inherited from Adam and Eve. Here is Peter Harrison, a professorial research fellow at the University of Queensland. A number of figures in the Royal Society would say, as a consequence of the
3: human fall, the human mind is to some extent unreliable. And as a consequence of what's required are not just casual observations or um, intuitions about the natural world, but a significant interrogation of nature that involves quite arduous experiments, that involves lots of people, and a long, long time frame. That quite distinctive experimental approach, which we only see for the first time in the 17th century, all of that tends to be motivated by a skepticism about human capacity to understand the natural world
0: easily. Hooke's own approach to science was designed to address all three of the problems that Augustinian theology posed. To solve the fallible memory problem, Hooke modeled and advocated practices of publishing, record-keeping, and scholarly correspondence among a community of research colleagues. To counter the error-prone tendencies of the human mind, Hooke developed the experimental method, which was based on developing hypotheses and using experiments to try and disprove them. Finally, Hooke showed how the human senses could be corrected and enhanced through technologies like the microscope and the telescope. All of these methodological innovations that ended up becoming what we know of as the foundation of the scientific method were developed specifically to address Protestant theological anxieties. His basic, basic idea
1: was that he was building instruments to overcome the defects of the human senses because human beings had fallen in the Garden of Eden. And we couldn't see, we couldn't hear. And, and also one thing that Francis Bacon was very keen on was that our brains were sort of clouded by what he called idols. So they were trying to uncover the glories of God's natural world. So the whole point of doing natural philosophy is to get closer to God.
0: And no one did a better job uncovering the natural world than Hook. Today, the Royal Society is the world's oldest continuous scientific institution. And is one of those institutions you just have to respect, right? I mean, the Royal Society. It just sounds so respectable. But in Hooke's day, it was fighting hard to establish its reputation. The society's practical, experiment-based approach was so new that society members were desperate to prove to a skeptical public, especially those in power, that this approach could yield results. As the curator of experiments, Hook found much of this burden falling on him. Hook was, quote, a sort of scientific showman, producing new demonstrations, gadgets, or microscopical observations week after week writes Stephen Inwood in his 2002 biography of Hooke. The society particularly depended on Hooke to impress their most powerful audience of all, their founder and patron, King Charles II. In 1663, the king promised to visit the society, and Hooke was charged with preparing a series of experiments to show him, along with a book of microscopical observations. But in the end, the king canceled his visit. Far from being impressed by the work of the Royal Society, the King found their efforts laughable, writes Inwood. The following year, one of the Society's leading members, Sir William Petty, visited the King himself to describe his plans for a twin-hulled boat. The British diarist Samuel Pepys recorded the scene.
4: The King came and stayed an hour or two, laughing mightily at Sir Petty and had Gresham College in general for spending time only in weighing of air and doing nothing else.
0: To rescue its own reputation and the reputation of science more generally, the Royal Society found itself placing their hopes on Hooke and his book on the microscope. Fortunately, Hooke was up to the task. From the start of his time with the Royal Society, Hooke had been bringing microscopic drawings and the microscope itself to weekly meetings, keeping the best ones for his long-worked-on book. In 1665, Hooke's labors were finally complete, and the book was printed and sold at a bookshop in London's St. Paul Cathedral. He titled it Micrographia, with the subtitle Some Physiological Descriptions of Minute Bodies Made by Magnifying Glasses, with Observations and Inquiries Thereupon. Micrographia was aimed at a wide readership and at King Charles. Undeniable proof, of what the society could accomplish. The book became an immediate sensation. Micrographia was so popular that its first printing sold out, and a second edition was issued just two years later. Extracts from the book would be featured in scientific texts for the next 150 years. Micrographia also succeeded in its more strategic aim of drawing scholars and naturalists to the Royal Society's cause. Samuel Pepys, the diarist who wrote about Sir William Petty's disastrous meeting with the king, eventually became president of the Royal Society. He first joined the society in February 1665, one month after reading and being captivated by micrographia. He said
2: that he brought home Robert Hooke's book of microscopical observations and he sat up in his chamber, let say, in his bedroom, till to, to two o'clock in the morning reading this book. The most ingenious book that ever I saw in my life. You know, I mean, so
0: it's just, it was a revelation. Micrographia was in demand in England and abroad. A summary version was printed in Germany with copies of the most popular illustrations. And the French Journal des Savants wrote a praise filled review that included a fold out of the arresting louse illustration. The words in the text were important, but it was the images that went viral.
1: Hook really revolutionized it by the whole field by producing these wonderful, wonderful
0: drawings. Before Hooke's illustrations, the world had never seen the wonders of the natural world at such scale and detail before. But the book did more than entrance the public. It laid the foundations of a key premise of modern science. That there is a truth deeper than appearance.
2: One of the um, most common ideas in science is that in order to understand things we look at the little things below the surface where does that idea come from you see it, it isn't obvious that that's that that's the case that the world beneath the obvious world is the real world you know is the is the world where action takes place you know and 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 where our world of uh, sensory experience is generated but we all believe that now as such a fundamental notion in contemporary science and it comes from this 17th century moment and it's reinforced by the use of the microscope which begins
0: to give us access to that world. Hook's scientific book and experiments are milestones in giving people greater understanding of the natural world but remember His approach to science was also designed to address a religious challenge posed by Reformation theology. St. Augustine emphasized the limits of human understanding as a result of the fall. Hooke's methods attempted to overcome those limits in order to seek knowledge of God through his creations. That quest for light and understanding finds expression in both science and religion, though they employ different methods and address different questions.
4: Religion and science, like philosophy and the study
0: of literature and history, all have, in some sense, as their object, truth. This is Robert P. George, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. The point of doing historical research is
4: to get at the truth about what happened and why it happened. The same is true of, uh, of philosophy. To understand what is the truth about the various areas of life that we address as philosophical questions. The same is true in the natural sciences, in in biology and in physics, trying to figure out what the truth is about organisms, or what the truth is about the structure of uh, the world uh, or the universe. Uh, And the same is true in religion. Is there a God? How do we understand God's relationship to us? Those are the questions that are addressed by religion. Religion wants to know the truth about them, just as
0: science wants to know the truth about the questions that science addresses. But even though both science and religion seek after truth, they differ in the kinds of truths they can investigate. The
4: scientific method will reveal truth about the world. But no one who is credible believes that science can reveal all the important truths about human life, Uh, questions of value, for example, what is worthwhile, what is humanly fulfilling. Those are important questions to which there are reasonable answers. There are truths that can be known. But no one believes they can be known by the scientific method. My uh, late and very beloved friend, Rabbi John Nathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of uh, the United Kingdom, had a saying. It's an oversimplification, but there's still truth in it. He said, science takes things apart in order to understand how they work.
0: Religion puts things together in order to understand what they mean. Robert Hooke developed innovative ways of taking things apart. With observations, experiments, and scientific tools, he could isolate variables to determine exactly which factors caused physical changes and reactions. With his microscope, he was able to reveal the constituent parts of living things in a way no one had ever seen before. He even coined the term for the basic building block of living organisms, cell. But for these methods to make sense, you have to make certain assumptions about the world. You have to assume that the same experiment, conducted in the same conditions, will yield the same results. You have to assume there are certain underlying regularities in how the world works, or your method could never reveal those regularities. Those assumptions belong to a larger worldview something you get when you put things together. And the particular worldview that would end up birthing the scientific method is the one developed by Judaism and Christianity. Although we've discussed how some Christian thinkers were skeptical about humans' innate mental abilities, more broadly, key elements of Christian theology created a philosophy and an intellectual environment that was actually quite hospitable to the development of science. For instance, Christianity like Judaism, taught that nature was just that, nature. Here's Stephen Barr, professor emeritus of physics at the University of Delaware.
5: I think one can say that there were aspects of Christian belief that were conducive to the uh, development of science. Modern science was born in the scientific revolution, which was really sparked by Copernicus in the 1500s, and then the century of the scientific revolution was the 1600s. And they took place in a part of the world that was Christian. And a very important aspect of Judaism Christianity is that they radically distinguished between God, the creator, and the created world. In the pagan myths, the forces of nature are either gods or are somehow inhabited by gods. In Judaism, Christianity in a sense wiped all that away and and it
0: rendered the world a natural world. According to this religious worldview, the world wasn't an extension of divinity. It was a physical, material world that with the exception of a few miracles here and there, operated according to regular, predictable, material causes. Just the kind of world that science can study.
5: If you go back to the early Christian writers, and look at what are their arguments for the existence of God. There were two arguments based on the created world. First of all, that the natural world needed a source of being. There had to be some cause of its being a real world, an actually existing world. The second argument was that there had to be a cause of the orderliness of the world. It's not just everything happening willy-nilly, no pattern, no structure
0: you know, chaos, haphazardness, there's a lot of order in the world. Christian belief in a divinely created world wasn't an impediment to science, it was the foundation. And in fact, it's conducive to the study of
5: science because if the world is the creation of a rational, intelligent, wise God, you would expect that the world he created would reflect this. And, and be based upon principles that were discoverable by reason. So the very idea of laws of nature sort of grew out of that. In fact, to Newton, the laws of nature were divine ordinances.
0: They were laws that God had given to the cosmos. These fundamental premises, that the world is physical, orderly, and coordinated by natural laws that human reason can discover, laid the groundwork for European scientific developments in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. But in the 19th century, as a result of Darwin's explosive and challenging new ideas of evolution, ideas that many Christians struggled to embrace, a new story began to be told. It claimed that Christian resistance to Darwin's ideas was just the latest example of a pattern, that religion and science have always been at odds, and that warfare between them is inevitable. This narrative is called the conflict thesis. It was an oversimplified and distorted picture of history that was promoted for particular cultural reasons. Brother Guy Consolmagno, a member of the Catholic Jesuit order and an astronomer physicist himself, explains.
4: You dig into the history and you find it comes out of the end of the 19th century And the agendas that people had to try to promote this split.
0: Two men in particular, the scientist John William Draper and the writer Andrew Dixon White, were the strongest promoters of this story of conflict. In Draper's 1881 book, History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, he wrote The history of
3: science is not a mere record of isolated discoveries, it is a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers. The expansive force of the human intellect on one side, and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests
0: on the other. Part of Draper and White's motivation was their goal to accelerate American industrial and social progress by elevating the prestige of scientists. But another motive was racism. They sought to oppose immigration to the U.S. from Catholic and Muslim countries and wanted to paint such immigrants as being inherently backward and superstitious. So, from the beginning, the story of religion and science's intrinsic conflict was driven by more than a dispassionate description of facts. But although the conflict thesis is an inadequate account of history, Brother Guy notes that it's important to attend to the element of truth within it.
4: But My famous theologian once told me that uh, every heresy is based on an important truth. You know, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't matter, and if it wasn't truth, it wouldn't be convincing. It's just that it's an incomplete truth.
0: Stephen Barr agrees that it's also wrong to say religion and science have never conflicted. There certainly is the potential for conflict, and not just the potential, but
5: there have been actual periods of tension and areas of tension, because uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam are all revealed religions. So what they is is uh, the truths revealed by God. And science, empirical science, is about the truths that we discover through reason and observation. And it is certainly possible in principle that something that is believed to be revealed by God and something that is believed to be have been discovered by science could be in conflict with each other. Now, of course, for a Catholic, we believe that they can't really conflict because to use a favorite idea of of Galileo, which actually goes back to St. Augustine, he borrowed it from St. Augustine, uh, is that God wrote two books. There's the book of of the Bible, and there's the book of nature. And as they have the same author, they can't be in uh, conflict. And so if there's an apparent conflict, you must be reading one or both books incorrectly. So that if you're patient, you'll find out that when you understand both books better, that that they're in, in accord. The key word here is patience. This is something that people should understand about science and religion. Science doesn't have instantly ready-made answers to every question. What we know about the natural world is is the result of 400 years of uh, enormous labor, intellectual labor by a large number of people. And it can take decades, many decades, to to work through the issues and show the consistency and to, to develop a consistent picture. It's the same in theology. It takes centuries to, to develop coherent understanding or answers to these questions. And similarly, in, the, in as far as the connection between religious truths and scientific truths, there can be apparent tensions. There can be difficult Questions that, that take a long time
0: to work out. We might find a path through these thorny issues by thinking differently about what science means. Today, we tend to think of science as a body of knowledge or a set of professional methods. We might similarly think of religion as a set of beliefs or practices. But centuries ago, these terms didn't simply refer to what people did or knew but who they were and how they lived. Here's Peter Harrison discussing the original meanings of the root words of religion and science. Now, one of the striking things
3: is that this word religio doesn't appear much in the New Testament at all. The the first Christians didn't think of themselves as religious people subscribing to a specific religion that was different from, say, another religion like Judaism or other religions like paganism. They thought of themselves not so much as subscribing to particular beliefs and practices, but practising a whole new way of life. Trust is the key element, that it's trust between individuals and it's and it's the individual's trust in God that constitutes the key element of what Christianity consists in. We see, if we move to the medieval period, we do see the term uh, religio being, being used, but it's understood to be a virtue. Um, and the virtues are the habits and practices that we have that help push us in the direction of you know, our ultimate goal or the ultimate um, aim of life. And religio is um, the first of the moral virtues and it's giving appropriate honour to God, but it's essentially, like the other virtues, um, something that's, that's internal, this kind of inherent attitude that individuals have. Um, And when we talk about science, we'll notice that scientia also is a virtue for the medieval thinkers, a way of approaching problems rather than a body of of knowledge about about the world. And so science, like religion, was conceptualized as as a quality of the individual Not so much a body of knowledge out there, although there were bodies of knowledge, but your interaction with these bodies of knowledge, the primary function of it was to inculcate the virtue within you of scientia. So scientia then is one of the intellectual virtues and its intention is to perfect our inherent drive towards truth and knowledge in order to fulfill that potential within us. So the aim was a kind of personal formation.
0: For these thinkers, religion is the virtue that orients you correctly toward the divine power in the universe. Science is the virtue that orients you correctly towards knowledge and truth. For some medieval theologians, these virtues were not only compatible, but so intertwined that failure to have one made it harder to have the other. Today, the landscape looks different. There's masses of new information to grapple with. And in turn, masses of new questions to consider about the relationship between our world and the divine, and between the truths found in experimentation and the truths found in revelation. But if we care about those questions, then perhaps thinking of religion and science as virtues to cultivate in ourselves can help us find the patience and the honesty we need to answer those questions faithfully. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. We are based at Harvard Divinity School and supported by the Templeton Foundation. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Rechtman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa, and artwork is by Dan Petschy. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, subscribing and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I'd like to invite you to listen to the Hub & Spoke show Soonish, hosted by journalist Wade Roush Soonish deploys sharp analysis and humane values to explore how technology is changing society. Learn more and listen at soonishpodcast.org. Hub and spoke. Audio Collective.